You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome to Gastropod. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this is not just any old podcast about the history and science of food. Oh no, my friends. This is an award-winning podcast about the history and science of food. That is true, and we are not even going to pretend not to brag. Recently, we found out that we won the 2015 International Association of Culinary Professionals Award for the Best Culinary Audio Series. Yeah, maybe! It is really exciting. We're in great company, too. We'll have a link to the list of award winners online, and there are lots of amazing writers and chefs on the list. We are in incredibly honored to be in their company. But enough with the celebrations. It is time for another helping of the good stuff. So after our epic adventures in cheese, this is one of our shorter episodes. But we've got two really interesting stories about the science of DNA testing and what it can tell us about food, past and present. And by way of an interlude, I will be bringing you all with me on a short hop over to Dublin to taste a meal entirely inspired by gastropod. Mmm, an edible version of this podcast. I hope it tasted great. Stay tuned and all will be revealed. We've all got DNA. Plants, animals, me, you. It's the genetic information that makes us who we are. And most of the time when you hear about it with food, it's in the context of breeding. So like the genomic breeding in dairy cattle that we talked about a couple of episodes back. But even when we aren't looking to change or improve it, DNA is packed full of useful information. Exactly. DNA analysis is incredibly important, and not just for the scientists who are doing the analysis themselves, but also for historians and archaeologists. So here's what I want to talk about this week. And I want to set the scene first. You know, the dawn of agriculture. It was about 10,000, 10,500 years ago. Agriculture began in the Near East, and then it spread to the Balkans in Europe about about 8,000 or 9,000 years ago, and then continued spreading across Europe, mostly to the south and west. So at this point, the English Channel had flooded at the end of the Ice Age, and England was separated from mainland Europe. And, and basically, it had been thought that agriculture arrived in the UK about 6,000 years ago. And that's a few thousand years later than in the South and West in mainland Europe. But, but here's the study that I love. It, it's from the journal Science, and I reported on it originally for a podcast for Scientific American. Researchers were studying archaeological sites that are submerged. They're looking at one at Boldner Cliff off the Isle of Wight between the UK and France. I've, I've never been there. Have you been there before? Yeah, the Isle of Wight, lovely holiday destination, Queen Victoria's favorite. <laughs> I mean, I haven't dived to Boldner Cliff because that's 
underwater, but... Exactly. It's more than 30 feet underwater. Uh, And there's a submarine archaeological site there. And the researchers there are studying this transition between hunter-gatherer and agriculture. So they pulled up ancient sediments under the site. And the site itself is about 8,000 years old, and it was sealed over by a peat bog, and it was flooded over the course of about 100 years. So, you know, they found these bits of burnt flint and worked wood and fiber and shells. It's clear that it was an occupied settlement. And they analyzed plant DNA. So usually to get plant DNA, researchers find plants and they extract the DNA. But here they did something different. They looked for DNA in the soil and the environment. They were trying to reconstruct the plants of the region. Um, They found signatures of oak and poplar and beech trees. And there's archaeological evidence that there were oak and poplar trees there. And they found grasses. But here's what's interesting. They found relatives of wheat, the kind that was domesticated from the Near East, not the local wild relatives. Does that mean that actually early British people started farming 2,000 years before we thought they did? Because that would be pretty shocking. That would rewrite everything we think we know about how and when agriculture spread out from the Near East through Europe. It doesn't seem like they were farming because here's something else that was interesting. They didn't find any pollen there. And, And that means it wasn't grown there because to grow, you'd need to have pollen to, you know, pollinate from one plant to another. Hmm. So yeah, as you said, that was still 2,000 years earlier than we thought that there were agricultural products there. So here's what scientists think might have been going on. They think that maybe the ancient British people were sailing across the English Channel and roaming across Europe further than we thought they did before. And, And maybe there were these relationships, these really interconnected, complicated social relationships between the ancient Brits and the rest of Europe, between the hunter gatherers and the early farmers. It's fascinating because even if we're not yet actually rewriting agricultural history itself, because it doesn't seem like they were farming wheat, we're still kind of rewriting social and cultural history. Yeah. And getting getting this bigger picture of how, why, and when people made the transition from hunter-gatherer to settled agricultural lifestyle is really fascinating. And I, I, I love this idea that an ancient British hunter-gatherer would have encountered wheat as something exotic and precious that would have been traded over long distances, you know, like spices were later on. I mean, we think of wheat as so blah, or even these days with the whole like gluten-free craze as something to avoid. But to them, maybe it seemed like something that was really, I mean, fabulous and worth trading for over long distances. I mean, the globalization of wheat starting early there. I do love this image. You can sort of picture this ancient hunter-gatherer with, the, you know, maybe a handful of wheat kernels and thinking, this is something I've never seen before, and then taking it all the way back home to his community. I just I think that's a great image. Um, and one of the other things I love about this study is that, you know, farming grew up in areas that are hot, and it's hard to preserve plant DNA there. But in these submerged sites, you have this really incredible preservation of material. So it might mean that there's a lot more to learn about agricultural history and just ancient history in general from these submerged archaeological sites. Oh, that's really interesting. Stay tuned. It sounds like like for more discoveries about how we actually became farmers, one of the biggest sort of shifts in humanity's history that ever happened. But while DNA is helping archaeologists rewrite the history of agriculture, Cynthia, it is also increasingly being used today to detect counterfeit food. Like seafood, you know, DNA is being used to tell if what is called wild 
salmon in your supermarket is actually farmed. Precisely. And I have a story all about that. But before we get to it, it is time for a trip to Dublin for a meal that was inspired by gastropod. I love the idea of a meal inspired by gastropod, but I have to admit, I haven't been able to talk to you about it since you just got back. I have no idea how this all came about. Take me to Dublin with you. Okay, so the backstory is um, I was invited over by the Science Gallery, which is this awesome combination gallery, um, art, science, event space. There's always really interesting exhibitions and events going on there. And the consultant chef there is a lady called Claire Ann O'Keefe. She's getting her master's in culinary innovation as well in all her spare time. And she's kind of a celebrity in Ireland because she was down to the final few in um, the Irish version of MasterChef a couple of years back. So she and I had been talking. She listens to Gastropod. And she had decided to put together a special in the cafeteria the week I was there, inspired by Gastropod. It's a meat pie and it's a, you know, mashed potato cake and then a nice bit of salad with it. But we've made a pie that has got um, Irish beef and craft Irish ale from a brewing company here in Dublin. And then we've got a potato cake with um, seaweed in it. And then we've got a subnatural salad. And my last little, I suppose, molecular gastronomy kind of um, decoration was I used maltodextrin, which absorbs oil in. So I took some of the lovely olive oil that we use and some of the hair oil that we have infused in the kitchen and have used that, which means I could serve it on the board without it kind of running off. And also it looks like dust, so it kind of fits in with the subnatural thing. So the meat pie as well. The meat pie is not just any meat pie, right? It's a historic recipe, is that right? The Science Gallery is part of Trinity University, and it's one of the oldest universities in Europe. We have a great dining hall here that's been part of the tradition of Trinity. So I looked into the... um, you know, some of the old menus and things that we had. And t- to be honest, although there were recipes, there wasn't anything that was massively specific to Trinity. But I did find in some of the books that we have, because we have an amazing library here, um, I found Hannah Glass's recipes. Okay, for those of you who haven't come across Hannah Glass before, she is, I don't know, the most important cookery writer of the mid-18th century. She really wrote the first cookbook for general households moving to cities. And those recipes define British cuisine even today. And they seem to have been used back in the day. So I kind of looked through it and it was based on, I mean, I've changed it a little bit. Um, Hannah Glass's recipe that had ale and beef in it um, also had everything bulked up with oysters. Now, to be honest, for our lunch special in the gallery, it was um, a little bit too much to use oysters. So I used oyster mushrooms. <laughs> I like that because it's like the pricing. I mean, the oysters were a food that you would have used to bulk out meat, and now they're more luxurious than meat itself. It's sort of the the little bit of history there of what has happened to oysters over time is really fascinating. It's also a very, very tasty meat pie. And I like how that you have some a historical recipe and a molecular gastronomy <laughs> thing on the same plate. That's perfect for gastropod science and history side by side on the same plate. I know, and it gets even better. So first of all, that maltodextrin, 
That was a powdered starch derived from cassava. Just like in our microbial agricultural episode where we went on a cassava crawl. And then the potato cake. Well, we did just have an episode where we talked all about potato biodiversity. And she mentioned there was seaweed in it, inspired by our kelp episode in December. I think the seaweed is quite Irish. And also, and just from a culinary point of view, it works really well. It gives you a really lovely umami taste. It gives you the salt in there. Um, I think people, some people are trepidatious about it, and some people seem to enjoy it. And then I think the best part, which was the subnatural salad. So Claire-Anne had really been inspired by that episode to think of all the food things that we don't value, that we see as weeds or unwanted byproducts of other foods or, or even trash. I really like the idea of kind of categorizing food as subnatural. So we've got some wild leaves, we've got some foraged um, you know, flowers like wild garlic. We've also got things that might have been thrown away in the kitchen if I, if, you know, I hadn't thought about things in a different way. So we've got really nice little bits of shredded potato crisp and we've got lovely carrot ribbons and we've got a whey dressing. So in Ireland we would use buttermilk a lot. So we've turned that into a dressing and it would be kind of be a byproduct of it. And there you have it, a gastropod-inspired meal. And it was attractive, innovative, and 100% delicious. We'll have photos online. And you never get to complain again about me getting to eat all the food on this show. That sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was. You're right to be jealous. But maybe Claire Ann will start a trend and there will be gastropod-inspired meals everywhere. And listeners, if there are, let us know. She is actually doing a whole subnatural meal in Dublin in a few weeks, if anyone's over there. But meanwhile... Back to DNA. So, some of you may recall that back in February there was this mini scandal about dietary supplements in New York. I do remember that. There were crackdowns on dietary supplements at, at big-name stores like Walmart and Target because their supplements didn't actually contain any of the things on the labels. Right, right. So I wrote a story all about this for the New Yorker's Elements blog. And what happened is the New York State Attorney General sent out these cease and desist letters to the store telling them to pull the products off the shelf. So we're talking about things like echinacea here, St. John's wort, all of that kind of stuff. And in his letter, he says, you know, the valerian root is garlic and wild carrot DNA, but no valerian. Walgreens St. John's wort, the DNA in that was from garlic, rice, and some houseplant that I don't actually know how to pronounce, but there was no St. John's wort. Um, same with ginkgo biloba from Walmart, the houseplant thing again. DNA from mustard, DNA from wheat, DNA from radish. And no ginkgo. Exactly. So the attorney general had, had used this technology called DNA barcoding that you mentioned. It, basically what it does, it allows you to identify an organism just using a small segment of its mitochondrial DNA. It's a very cool uh, system. This database of life project was started in 2004 as sort of a way to identify species based on that tiny segment of mitochondrial DNA. It's run out of Ontario. Scientists can take a sample of anything in the world, extract its DNA, amplify it, and then match it against the species that are listed in the database and see if it matches any of them. It was initially used and still is a lot for biodiversity. People doing, you know, have they discovered a new species in the rainforest type idea. It's very useful for other things too. So as you mentioned, for fish fraud, it works really well. Is that red snapper really red snapper? Um, and so that was what the Attorney General of New York decided to use to test the dietary supplements. Now, so food fraud and mislabeling is actually a big problem, bigger than I had thought. 
And I'm no particular fan of dietary supplements for a variety of reasons. Me either. But the attorney general used the wrong test. DNA barcoding is not the thing to use in this case. This is a surprise to me. Why is it not right? I would think DNA plants make sense. You test the DNA, you figure out what the plants are. Right. So the reasons why not are kind of fascinating. I spoke to a bunch of experts. There are three major problems with using DNA barcoding to test which plants are in your dietary supplements. So first of all, there's a thing that actually inert ingredients like wheat and rice and even wild carrots, they're actually perfectly legal in dietary supplements, provided they're kept below a certain level. And they're often added afterwards. So rice powder will be used as a filler to to help kind of bulk out the capsule size. And were they actually below the level that they're that legally allowed to be? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it is possible to kind of gauge the ingredient amounts or proportions, at least, using DNA testing. But that's a more complicated process than the standard test. And there's just no evidence that the attorney general had actually performed that level of analysis. So we don't know. Then the next problem. So it turns out that industrial processing actually tends to destroy a plant's genetic material without affecting its supposed health benefits. So this is actually, you know, it comes back to you. You're saying, you know, it's really hard to find plant DNA that ancient unless it's been preserved by a peat bog. Well, it's the same with um, with DNA and echinacea. That DNA breaks apart as soon as it gets like even a little tiny bit stressed. So if you heat it, if you irradiate it to kill microbes, which is a totally normal thing to do, even the kinds of solvents that you might use to extract the botanicals and purify them, those can all destroy the DNA. So DNA barcoding is useful with raw plants, but not so much with processed ones. So are you saying that the fillers, though, like the rice, those aren't processed in the same ways? Well, they're added after a lot of the processing. Got it. So then, okay, how are you supposed to know if there is actually echinacea in your echinacea? Okay, so this is actually where, for me, it became insane. It turns out to be this fascinating organization called the USP, or the United States Pharmacopeal Convention which I will from now on refer to as USP because that's hard to say. I was going to say, I don't even think, I've seen it written, but I don't think I could pronounce it. Try typing it in a story. I got it wrong every single time. So USP, it's a nonprofit. And what it does, it exists to do this, to set the official standards of identity for pharmaceuticals and food ingredients and dietary supplements. And standards of identity are basically how you know a thing is a thing. It's sort of like this philosophical question, what is echinacea? (laughs) Okay, so beyond philosophy, how do you actually know that echinacea is echinacea? I'm so glad you asked. They emailed me a series of step-by-step pages of instructions from their standards of identity book. And what it is is a series of this very, very, very precise chemical tests and expected results. Things like thin layer chromatography, you have to dilute it with this solvent, you expect to see this result, how much moisture does it lose? I mean, there were, well, it was way beyond my science uh, literacy and several pages long. Several pages long for each? Yeah, yeah. You could never do this at home. I mean, you would have to do this in a lab. If you could do all of this at home and you got all of those exact results, then you would know your echinacea is echinacea. Anything else, if you didn't get those exact results, it's not echinacea. Um, So they do this for like all sorts of 
preservatives, additives in food, as well as pharmaceuticals, like I say. And the tests are put together by a committees of experts. There's this three-month public comment period, and then they publish them, and then that is the official standard of identity for all of these things. And it's just sort of this extremely fascinating and insanely boring epistemological masterwork. Um, But to get back to DNA, the point is that the definitive test for echinacea is not DNA barcoding. It's this multi-page series of chemical experiments. So why then did the attorney general use DNA instead? Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. DNA is very trendy right now. There's one thing, you know, USP were clear with me. I spoke with them. They are the legal standard of identity for pharmaceuticals and food ingredients, but they are not uh, the official standard of identity for dietary supplements. So actually, the FDA doesn't really require an official standard of identity for dietary supplements. They just say you have to use appropriate, scientifically valid methods. So that, as you can imagine, is the start of a long court case ahead because the attorney general is going to argue that DNA barcoding is appropriate and scientifically valid. And, you know, the supplement manufacturers are going to say, no, it's not. Look at the USP standards. You know, just to bring back the attorney general's office into this, you, you say you don't know why they chose it, but you did try to talk to them about it, right? I certainly did. And they gave me a couple of answers that actually sort of didn't address why they use DNA testing and these other methods and and didn't address what the problems with the DNA testing were. And then since then have sort of refused to speak. So I guess it's an ongoing ongoing thing in New York. But for our purposes, what's interesting is, you know, what DNA can and can't do when it comes to food. And that is what I just love about both of these stories is, you know, I did this one story on kind of what DNA can tell us and and excavating these ancient 8,000-year-old sediments and finding remains of plant DNA that can paint a picture of the time. And then you do this story where... Right. DNA goes to Target. (laughs) Exactly. And it, it fails. And turns out to be the wrong thing. But yeah. And also, Cynthia, let's not forget the craziness of the USP, this gigantic multi-volume book that no one has ever heard of that defines everything. It's like a Borgesian fantasy. And that brings this week's episode to a close. We will be back in a fortnight. Two weeks. Sorry, I have been back in the motherland, as I mentioned. And in fact, I think fortnight is a highly useful word that we need to start importing and using over here. Okay, fortnight. We will be back in a fortnight with an in-depth exploration of the mysterious world of artificial flavorings. And as always, you can find links and photos and lots more information that we could not fit into the episode on our website at gastropod.com. You can tell us and your followers what you thought of this episode by tweeting at gastropodcast. You can visit our Facebook page or you can email us at contact at gastropod.com. Yes, please give us a shout. We love hearing from you. And if you're interested in supporting Gastropod, also send us an email, contact at gastropod.com. Till next time. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. 
You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.